Welcome to Reinventing Nerds. Dr. Joni Cannell shares communication strategies for technical people. She shares her own stories of learning to communicate and brings in other nerds and experts to show you how to interact with people in a way that's comfortable for you. And now, here's your host, the uniquely qualified engineer turned psychologist, Dr. Joni Cannell. Hello, and welcome to Reinventing Nerds. Today we have a really special guest. Her name is Juliet Powell, and she is the author of the recent book, The AI Dilemma. Juliet is an entrepreneur, technologist, and a strategist, and her background is varied and extensive, but her most important contribution to this book and this podcast right now is that she consults on responsible technology. And we're talking about AI, we're talking about responsibility. So let's get Juliet on. Welcome, Juliet. Thank you so much for having me. I am so glad you're here. And I've been uh, really looking forward to this podcast for a long time because I've been doing a lot of work with AI recently and the ethics, and we do a lot in consulting with AI. But, you know, this podcast is really, you know, reinventing nerds. It's all about nerds and, you know, a variety of people who who listen and watch. But uh, the question that everybody has been asking about is, you know, what's what's going on with AI? Uh, how do we make sure that it doesn't um, take over the world and harm humans and all that? So let's let's start small. And first of all, like uh, maybe so I don't put words in your mouth. How did you come to write the book, The AI Dilemma, first of all? I was as surprised as you, I, I've got to say. So in 2017, I was taking care of my mom who was suffering from stage four cancer and she passed away. And I was completely discombobulated um, as one is when, you know, mm -hmm. some love just is no longer there. And it was important for me to continue growing as a human, but I felt so stuck. I was in mourning deep, deep morning. I've never been a depressed person, but all of a sudden my whole world or so I felt um, had just tilted the other way. And as a result, I decided to go back to school. And I was lucky enough that Columbia University said, yeah, come on over. So I, I was taking care of my mom in Los Angeles and drove across the country in my Jeep with my dog, Tyra Banks. And next thing you know, I was a student again. And it was phenomenal to have, you know, time that I never took when I was younger because I went to, to work almost immediately mm -hmm. before and then to actually be able to do a degree that was focused on things that I was already working on so I was already working um, on one end social media then the social graph then did work with Intel labs kind of mapping the personal data ecosystem from a global perspective to wondering why you know there wasn't more representation um, from all types of different people, as opposed to uh, very much one subset that was well represented back in 2012, when it came to anything big data, anything uh, that that was related to data science or artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, neural networks, I just was not seeing anybody that looked like me. So while I was back in school, it was just, okay, great. Not only am I going to go back to my coding skills, but I'm also going to better understand the impact that these technologies are having on society because I've been more on the engineering side. And I was just completely taken aback by um, what big 
tech essentially called self-regulation and the harm that many people were reporting, some of the lawsuits that were starting to arise. And then of course the pandemic where we accelerated our use of AI, most of us stayed at home and it was only those of us who actually had access to the internet and you know data literacy, digital literacy that could continue to grow uh, a business or you know to stay in touch with the the career or job that they already had. So long story short, my dissertation turned into a book, and um, the only reason that that actually happened was because I sent my dissertation to somebody that I had worked with in the past, Art Kleiner, who at the time was at PwC, and he said, "My God, you really, <laughs> you really wrote this dense tome, this academic." treaties um but i get the uh, the feeling that you know if we just clean up the the vocabulary make it less academic and um we might be able to talk to more people in the world so i really wrote it for you know all of the engineers that are calling me up during the day saying oh my gosh we just managed to do this amazing thing with the technology but i'm really worried about the use cases if we decide to use this technology for other things i could see uh, a big big uh, negative impact on vulnerable populations, for example. And so try to take into account the engineer's perspective, the corporate perspective, the governmental perspective, but also the social justice perspective. And how do we look at AI from all of those perspectives so that we can create technologies that are good for the majority of us as opposed to just some of us? Yeah, well, you said so many things here and I wanted to just capitalize on a couple of them. One of them was about that you had an academic beginning to this book and had to change it out to make it more accessible. But one of the things I really liked about the academic part of it was that there's actually evidence and theory that backs up what you're talking about, especially on the human side, like the illusion of control, for example, and the decades of research that have proven this to be true and, and how AI is being used and how we don't even realize it. And I can go on and on. I, I won't take the, the spotlight from you, but I just wanted to say that I, I really appreciated that in the book. And, and I also think that my audience, nerds, love to see data and and evidence to back up claims. So I think that's a really uh, a good selling point. Uh, and it's also written in an accessible way. It's not an academic, so I won't scare anyone off with that. But um, so you were talking about bias, okay? I mean, that's one of the scariest things I think about AI right now is uh, that it it really doesn't represent different populations. And there's so much in there. Now, how do you, you talked about that it's, that it's already there. How does bias get um, brought into these algorithms and perhaps exacerbated or, you know, perpetrated even in new bias? How does that happen? Well, it can happen in many different ways. Mm -hmm. I think for the most part, it is absolutely not done on purpose. I think that mm -hmm. anyone working in the space truly uh, is a techno-optimist to a certain degree, really feels that technology can help humanity um, is not trying to use technology to, you know, favor certain groups rather than other groups. But I do think that what happens is that we tend to want to surround ourselves with people that are similar to us. There are many different studies mm -hmm. on that. And it doesn't matter which, which group or subgroups you're part of. We like to be able to relate to others that, you know, empower us and make us feel smart and uh, make us feel like we're growing as humans. And oftentimes when you look at the, the actual people that do that, 
it tends to be not the people that agree with us all the time, but the people that push back against us. Mm -hmm. The people say, yeah, but what about these other things? Have you looked at it from this other perspective? Or what about the longer term impact of X? And I think that, you know, one of the ways that, that we're seeing negative biases creep into our algorithms are in the selection of team members. And when I talk about diversity, it's not just about diversity of race or diversity of gender. It's rather about diversity of thought, right? Mm -hmm. Different people with different kinds of educations, different cultures, different ways of looking at the world. There's some people that are self-taught that are really valuable because they have not been you know, socialized and re-socialized by specific institutions. Stanford, for example, MIT, um, there are many universities that we think of here in the United States where we see most of the people that work in big tech have graduated from these specific universities. Mm -hmm. And so it's great to throw in people from different countries that are self-taught, um, people that have different levels of uh, socioeconomic power, if you will, will also look at um, how you design an algorithm, what source data are you using, what kind of training data are you using, is the training data reflective of your population of interest? If your population of interest is the entire world, is your training data actually representing everybody on the planet or just, you know, the ones that you think that you can monetize first? You know, what does your model look like? Is it actually representative of Again, the applications, the use cases that where you're going to be applying your algorithm, are you just copying and pasting because you're lazy or because you decided to use generative AI to code and you don't necessarily know how to code, so can you verify it? There's so many different ways that we as humans apply bias in our daily life. We're just encoding these negative biases into our systems. And as the systems proliferate, they've become ubiquitous if you live in a GA country. I also think about the billions more that are coming online in the next few years who don't necessarily know about these algorithms or understand how much they're shaping us. So I feel like we, um, as the first users of these technologies, the first ones to deploy them and design them have an added layer of responsibility for the rest of the world. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting that you're talking about how these biases can just get sucked in without us even realizing it and and how important it is to bring in others. I was working uh, in a healthcare environment recently and just had this one of these tidbits of knowledge that uh, there was a concern that kidney transplants uh, were biased in selection uh, with AI because there weren't people of different backgrounds, races, for example, in the sample of kidney transplants. And so they weren't being chosen because they didn't fit the AI. And, you know, we see this, you said about employee selection and all that too. I mean, it's not that people want to necessarily have this kind of bias, but it comes up. And if we're not looking for ways to examine it, and oversee it and ask the right questions, uh, then it just comes in. Uh, one of the things you talked about earlier also in, in the book too was the different types of logic I liked in the in power that these different groups like individuals, like engineers, and, and then we have social justice and government and corporate. And then you also talk about bringing different kinds of people together to have a discussion. Do you think about... Uh, or advocate bringing in different entities as well, a representative of those in addition to just people with different backgrounds? 
Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, we're all stakeholders in the AI ecosystem, right? As soon as it affects, you're part of that ecosystem. And I think that I really respect the organizations that tend to want to give voice to um, anyone that's that's really being affected by the technologies that they're deploying. I think one, it's a responsibility, but the other one, we all believe in checks and balances, right? And it's really hard to criticize yourself. And it's really hard to criticize something that has cost you millions, potentially billions of dollars to build, to deploy. And, you know, there were reasons why it was built that way. And oftentimes when it talks about uh, a corporate institution, we're talking about shareholders and we're talking about return on investment and profit and that that's the first imperative of the corporation. But I also think that um, when it comes to auditing, for example, um, whether we're talking about algorithms or the entire system around which machine learning is built for an organization, then we need independent auditors. And mm -hmm. that means they wouldn't necessarily come from one of the four logics that you mentioned that are featured in my book. They might come from, for example, academia, research institution that has absolutely nothing to gain by looking at this and telling you what they find. And I think that it's really, really important to be able to include organizations that are, are independent and individuals that are independent, but also that we have a nice cross-section of different fields that are represented. So that it not just be people that are working in computer science, not just systems engineers but or data scientists, that we're also including social scientists, that we're mm -hmm. including uh, behavioral scientists, you know, psychologists, anthropologists, people that understand how we humans have traditionally dealt with socio-technical systems, the impacts that they've had on us as human beings, but also the potential impact that these new technologies, these self-learning, self-adapting technologies might have on us so that we can better navigate, again, not just for the short term, but also for the medium and very long term. So I'm thinking legacy, long-term legacy. Well, it sounds like, Juliet, you're talking about putting a bit of an investment in the front end uh, to make sure that the product or the AI or the tool, whatever it is you're creating, is not only accurate and useful right now, but over the long term, it's a bigger societal global issue uh, that we're doing this responsibly. So, you know, it's very interesting having auditors and it's it seems like uh, it's important to do the right thing. How how can we get businesses to make those kind of investments I mean, what do you, what is your solution for that or, or suggestions? Because like you said, people are interested in um, uh, satisfying their stockholders, you know, and, uh, you know, how do we get people to think bigger? Well, for anybody who's been paying attention to the AI space, there are several things that are coming down the pipeline. One is that with the advent of generative AI, and it's been exactly one year in November, but so AI launched with ChatGPT, and since then we've seen a wild proliferation of all kinds of chatbots, some that we recognize as chatbots, some that many of my students, for example, at NYU think are human. Um, but it's only been a year. So I think that we all have to acknowledge that we're in an experimental phase with generative AI in particular, and that that's, that's accelerating uh, the potential of these tools being in the hand of the every person as opposed to the expert 
right? You no longer have to know machine learning to be able to utilize these tools. Many of them are still free. And so there's been a huge, huge shift. Um, and so to really be responsible, I think that we all need to do some form of calculus of intentional risk. What are we trying to achieve? Knowing that there have already been uh, multiple lawsuits from you know, individual corporations that are saying, hey, you're stealing our stuff to individual comedians and actors mm -hmm. that are saying, hey, you're, you're stealing our likeness, you're stealing our uh, what we wrote in books, you're stealing our copyright. Um, and so I would definitely think about all of those things as I'm engaging with these new technologies, again, hopefully in small experimental ways to start. I also, um, I, just because we're using AI doesn't mean that we no longer need people. I think that we need people all the more so that we as a global community can begin to evaluate not just the tools themselves, not just the use cases for the tools, but also ultimately, in many cases, we're throwing AI at things that don't necessarily need AI. Many things just need a simple logic chain, <laughs> but we want to you know, throw the shiny new thing at it. And so again, trying to... I think keep in mind how expensive these tools can be. Um, there will only be two or three players in the world that will win and everyone else uh, are, are likely to pay a lot of money. We saw this with blockchain, right? Where every mom and pop shop wanted to throw a blockchain at everything mm -hmm. and then realize, oh wow, this is really expensive to do. So there, there are different hidden expenses that go in this larger calculus of intentional risk. One is your reputation. So yes. if- if the chatbot or whatever it is, um, you know, inspires, empowers, tells people to do something that could be harmful to a human, are you going to get sued? Well, likely yes. And what does that mean? Uh, we don't know yet because that that has just begun, right? But if you look at the uh, regulation that's coming out of the European Union, right, the Artificial Intelligence Act. Right. Mm -hmm. is last phases. And so we should be seeing something coming out by the end of this year, early next year. Um, that has an impact, not just on technologies that are created or deployed in the European Union, but on all countries, all corporations, all individuals. If there is even one European Union citizen in the training data, and considering that most of these technologies are still based on this idea of a closed or a black box, you don't know if you're buying this right. stuff off, you have no idea. So it's it's all the more difficult to self-regulate if you can't open your own box, if you don't understand how the technology is spitting out the output that it's spitting. Um, and if you don't kind of plan this whole process in a very strategic way, again, keeping in this calculus of intentional risk. Um, you know, the larger the question, the, the more responsibility you have. Right, the more users you have, and the more likely you will be sued and be hit by the Artificial Intelligence Act, which is six or seven percent of your annual revenue um, for for your core corporation as well as all subsidiaries, plus any damages. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Okay. So money talks. That's certainly one thing, but liability. I mean, it's not just about money, reputation. Uh, you might go out of business if you do something that is what people consider unethical, right? Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. Hmm. Uh, well, let me ask you something, because we talk a lot about 
things that can happen and things are starting to happen, but a lot has already happened with AI that perhaps, you know, some of the engineers and really technical people understand. I think they understand more than some others, but like social media, you talk a lot about that and how people are being controlled by AI. Can you just tell us a little bit about what's going on and what are some of the concerns with that? So this idea of control, I think, is biological, and there are lots and lots of studies behind that. We all have this need for control. Um, it makes us feel like um, we will survive, and that's a really important thing for all of humanity, no matter where you come from or, or what your culture or background is. Ultimately, the more we rely on our technologies, and I'm talking all technologies, the more we feel like we're in control, and that makes sense, right? For many of us, getting a car, for example, is the epitome of freedom. Right. You can finally leave your parents' house. You can go where you want, with whom you want, at whatever time you want, within certain limits. Um, you can, again, do as much as you possibly want, as long as you follow the laws. Right. If, if you follow those laws, no police is going to stop you. You won't end up in jail. You won't hurt anybody. And you can get as much freedom as you possibly want. But then there are other technologies that that um, have come up more recently, things like social media, where you know, all of a sudden you can talk to just about anybody on the planet. You feel like you have access to these worlds that perhaps you never had access to that makes you feel like you're more in control. Um, in many cases, we rely more on news that is delivered through people that we care about through social media than we do in any other form, which means that the way that we think is being shaped by the technologies that we used and by the people that we follow essentially. And so this illusion of control happens when we stop thinking, when we stop doing any kind of um, cost-benefit analysis to our time or where we invest our money, and that we just hit that buy button because it's mm -hmm. easy and that we just keep swiping yes, 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 or swiping right, 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 because the algorithm is determined that everybody that I think is handsome is going to pop up. And as a result, I have to think about it. And when you don't think about it, again, that means that we've re we've removed friction, right? That that um, the walk from where you picked up the milk and the bread and the eggs to the checkout, where you have a few minutes to kind of think about what you're doing and what your budget is and what it is that you're trying to make in in selecting particular products, a lot of that friction is removed when we're doing these purchases digitally or when we're interacting digitally. So um, as a result, we tend to just go for the, the shiniest button, the easiest thing. We follow our intuition as opposed to following our own logic. And so technology gives us an illusion of control that we don't necessarily have real control, according to Dr. Sheena Yengar, who's at Columbia Business mm -hmm. School, is really about taking that time to determine what we really want, what's the best strategy to get there, will making this move, making this purchase, making this decision, hiring this person, applying to this job, will that get us closer to what we really want in the medium and in the long-term as well as in the short-term? And that takes time. It takes a lot of brain power. And if we were to do that for every single decision that we make in a day, we'd for the most part not do a whole lot. And so we delegate more and more of that decision-making to our technology, but ultimately when it comes to machine learning, I think that we do need to make that distinction between the illusion and control 
and actual control. And how much of that control do you really want in your life? Do you want the algorithms to essentially determine, you know, who you're mating with and therefore not just your legacy, but, you know, ultimately your family's legacy. I think it's really important to stop and, and kind of think about the kind of world that we actually want from time to time. Juliet, you are just really putting some powerful examples out there. That is really effective. Um, let me let me just comment on that because one, you know, we talk about slowing AI down or the development, uh, especially of generative AI and all of that. And I know that's that's a big thing, but you're talking about slowing down the individual person and their decision making to make sure that they actually are deciding what they want rather than being controlled by this algorithm to give them an automatic response. That is huge. I think that's something that you're talking, you know, for everyday people, what can we do to help ourselves and to perhaps slow down the AI and say, wait a minute, I don't want this to be as fast as possible all the time. Right. I need to stop and think where it's important for me to make these decisions, like who I mate with and and create babies with or something, you know, I mean, that could be that's a big decision. We, we don't want an algorithm necessarily to take that over. Well, it's, you know, there's a difference between going on a date with someone and mm-hmm. sharing coffee with someone and actually, you know, going out and, and creating new life with that person. Mm-hmm. But often these things we do it very very quickly one leads to the other and you never actually think about it but yeah I thought this person was really interesting but did I ever really plan on having yeah. five kids <laughs> yeah well that is I mean that is just really interesting and and I mean that's just a sort of a commentary on our society right now we keep thinking efficiency and that's actually one of the logics too the engineers right they're trying to make things as efficient as possible but realizing you get the social scientists in here to say wait a minute uh, we don't always want things to be as quick as possible because we do need time for deliberation uh, and the human side of it as well to, you know, especially to minimize harm, right? And uh, that that is just, wow, you have really powerful examples and in the book as well. Well, you know, I think that uh, we are getting close on time. I want to ask you one final question, and that is, you know, especially for businesses, we talk sort of big picture, what can people do? Do you have any just final like steps or words that you could say to people in businesses, in organizations who, what, what like immediate things could they do right now to help uh, build responsible technology or AI tech, a responsible AI technology? First and foremost, I think it's important to look at the culture of the organization mm-hmm. and what the organization is trying to achieve. Um, why was it formed? Why do people want to work there? Why do people care about your brand, your products, your services? Like, what are you actually about? And um, through that process, I think it's very, very important that there be some sort of AI governance. So there should be governance for your various technologies, emerging technologies, but one specific to AI. And if you haven't done that yet, then make sure that you include generative AI in that. Some Fortune 500 companies are completely banning it. Others are really empowering their employees to take you know, an extra 10% of time that's paid for and figure out how best to utilize these technologies, not just for a specific job function, but for the organization as a whole. So these are two very, very different approaches. And I think depending on your business, both can be valid, but determining what that AI governance is, is a first step. 
uh, the set, and I think that again, that that huge diversity of types of people that participate in the creation of that is important because we're all stakeholders in AI. Um, and finally, and this is something that very few people do, that very few organizations do, but I think that we all owe it to ourselves because we all have it in the palm of our hands right now, this machine learning capability, is what is it that I as an individual am not willing to do for a buck? And as an organization, what are you not willing to do to make money? Because it's the Wild West right now. And this, this technology is going to make the next wave of new millionaires, multimillionaires, and billionaires. But the question is, again, how much control do we have? How much are we relinquishing? And are we thinking about what we're doing? So asking the question to yourself and to your organization, what are you not willing to make money? And if those answers align between you and the organization, you're at the right spot. But if they're not, then you should probably look for another job or maybe even better start your own organization. Yes, ethics. It comes down to a lot of ethics when we're, we're coming, you know, what is it that we're willing to do? So I that is just one word that, that people can think about. But I mean, money is tied to ethics. All sorts of things are tied to ethics. But when the buck stops here is what you're saying. Like literally, what are you unwilling to do for a buck? So... Uh, every person who's listening or watching can ask themselves that question when they leave. So how can people reach you if they want to? Uh, and how can people get the book? Uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, most books are available on Amazon, as you know. Um, mm -hmm. me. My name is Juliet Powell. And you can reach me through julietpowell.com. We have an AI advisory. So if you're struggling with a lot of the things that we talked about today and a bunch of other things around generative AI or just the implementation of the AI within your organization, reach out. Happy to have a conversation. And if you can't remember my name, then check out the podcast and hopefully <laughs> clues. Uh, I think you you are giving them a 30% discount on the book. So mm -hmm that website and of course i'm available on linkedin so anyway they're all good ways excellent thank you juliet and yes uh we will have a qr code posted on the website uh, for the podcast and people can find that at reinventingnerds.com to get the qr code for 30 percent off the book which is a nice little savings there and I will just say again, The AI Dilemma, it's definitely a good read and uh, an essential read for people in all aspects of life here. So thank you, Juliet, for being here today and for interviewing on Reinventing Nerds. This has been so much fun. I hope we get a chance to talk again. Thanks. And thanks to our viewers and listeners. And we will see you next time here at ReinventingNerds.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Reinventing Nerds and encourage you to apply what you learned to help you communicate better. For a free consultation with Joni to see how she can help you further, please visit ReinventingNerds.com. Until then, embrace your inner nerd and remain true to yourself while you develop your communication strategies.